Hello, and welcome to the interview series, New Books in African American Studies, where writers and scholars of African American art, life, culture, and sciences discuss their new books. I'm your host, Vershawn Young, and today I had the opportunity to speak with Pierre W. Orlis about his provocative and fascinating new book, The Agony of Masculinity, Race, Gender, and Education in the Age of New Racism and Patriarchy. Orla's book examines the personal narratives of 50 men of African descent and their relationship to patriarchy, maleness, sexism, racism, and homophobia. What you'll find in this book and in my discussion with Pierre Orlis is something that we all can learn from. Let's listen in. Hi, Pierre. Hi, how are you? Very well. Thanks for asking. Today, we're speaking with Pierre W. Orlis, author of The Agony of Masculinity, Race, Gender, and Education in the Age of the New Racism and Patriarchy, published by Peter Lang in 2010. If the title tells readers anything, it alerts us to the psycho-emotional trauma that black men experience, perhaps across the globe. It further suggests that trying to meet the expectations of masculinity breed rather than reduce the debilitating effects of heteronormativity and compulsory heterosexuality. Orlis brings a unique perspective to the ongoing analysis of gender in our era of the new racism. Like sociologist Patricia Hill Collins, who says the new racism must be understood in gender-specific ways, Oralis posits black masculinity as the lens through which we can examine racism, sexism, and homophobia. I'm delighted to have Pierre with us to discuss his book. Pierre, will you begin by telling us a bit about yourself? Sure, I'll be happy to. First, let me um, thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk about my book and, of course, a little bit about myself. Um, I was born in a working-class family in Haiti. Um, Haiti, as you know, was colonized by France, and we gained our independence in 1804, thanks to the sacrifice of the slaves who were imported from Africa to Haiti. I lived in Haiti up until I was in, I was, I was like early, in my early 20s. I then moved to the United States. Now, let me back up a little bit. When I was in Haiti, I, um, I was what would one call political activists. Um, I remember when I was in high school, I led a movement that that um, that overthrew the high school principal, who used to call us communists, partly because we used to um, have meetings where we invited people from the left to talk about issues, uh, social justice issues, uh, which were, which, the high school principal did not take well. Anyway, I finished high school in Haiti, and I spent about three semesters in college. And then I then moved to the United States, uh, partly because my older brother was already living here, encouraged me to come here, uh, assuring me that I would make it. In other words, I would be able to um, have a good education, a good job. So that's the mentality that many immigrants have, or in fact, even, pe- even people who want to move to the United States or Europe, always think that if they come here, 
you will have a better opportunity, which is the case for many, but not all. In any case, when I first came to the U.S., uh, it was at first challenging, both culturally and and linguistically. Um, by that, I mean I did not speak English, therefore I had to learn it. Uh, once I felt that I had enough proficiency in the language, I decided to go back to school uh, to finish my bachelor's. Mm-hmm. I did my bachelor's in human services, and I also did a minor in advocacy, human advocacy, uh, thinking that I would go to law school, which in fact I tried, but I realized that law school, law school was not for me. Um, therefore, I decided to go back to school to earn a master's degree in applied linguistics. Now, before I went back to school um, to earn my master's in applied linguistics, I worked as a social worker. Uh, mainly, I served uh, elderly uh, folks who needed services to be uh, who needed services to to live well at home. Um, I did that for about three years. Then I went. Then I decided to go back to school to uh, to do a master's in applied linguistics. While I was doing my master's, I had the opportunity to work to teach at a high school located in the most marginalized neighborhood in Boston, Massachusetts. I taught reading, writing, and critical thinking skills to uh, people of color, but mainly immigrants from from Africa uh, and the Caribbean. I did that for about three years, then I got laid off in 2003, uh, so I decided to go back to school again once more to pursue a doctorate in education. Um, while I was doing my doctorate, I had the privilege to work with urban school teachers, uh, which was a very positive experience for me because I was able to um, apply some of the theories, knowledge that I acquired in the classroom. Um, so that was a good opportunity for me to see, uh, to be able to uh, put in practice what I was learning in my classrooms, uh, in my classes. Um, so when I finished my, my doctorate, as like everybody does, you know, you go on the job market looking for a job. So I did that, and I was made two offers, one of which was at New Mexico City University, which is the place where I'm currently um, teaching and doing research. More or less, that's been my trajectory. I don't know if you want me to expand on certain, you know, areas of my uh, life experience from Haiti to the United States, but basically, in a nutshell, that's been my journey. And perhaps uh, later in the discussion, some of that might become um, uh, relevant to discuss as we discuss some of the interviews that you um, talk about in the book. But before we begin to discuss, in particular, the agony of masculinity. Can you tell us a little bit about your uh, first book, Under Occupation, The Heavy Price of Living in a Neo-Colonized and Globalized World? Well, that book, uh, as you may know, I wrote it when I was a student. Um, as I mentioned earlier, Haiti was colonized by France. So in the Haitian school system, we uh, we essentially learn things about France, the history of France, uh, French philosophers, we learn about them, French literature, and there wasn't enough emphasis in, from, from, you know, when I was going to school in Haiti, uh, there wasn't enough emphasis on Haitian uh, literature, Haitian culture. It seems to me the teachers were, had a colonized mind. 
he wanted us to learn um, about French literature, French uh, history, uh, whereas Haitian history, Haitian literature was 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 not something that they really emphasized on. So I found that very problematic, and I resisted this form this form of uh, colonial legacy. Um, then moving from Haiti to the United States. I was faced with linguism, you know, discrimination based on, on one's language, on one's native language. Um, so all these experiences combined, I realized that it was important for me to put it into print. Like my voice, my, or my voice, it was important for me to put my voice into print. This is why I decided to write that book while I was, uh, while I was pursuing my doctorate in education. Basically in the book, I, I provide a critique of the, of the Haitian school system, which is still a colonial-based school system. In other words, all the books that uh, that I used when I was in high when I was in high school reflect uh, deeply uh, French literature, French culture, French literature. Even the even even the, the on the cover of those books, you you have you have images, pictures of. Of, of, of French philosophers, French, you know, uh, uh, writers. But there, like I said, there wasn't enough emphasis on, on, uh, uh, on French, uh, on Haitian literature, Haitian, uh, history. Although there, there were some teachers, my, uh, history, uh, high school history teacher was, was very conscious of, of that. And he made the effort to, to talk about Haitian history in the most inspiring, profound way. Nonetheless, there were teachers, like I said, who had a colonized mind. They thought that French, the language, is superior to, you know, Haitian Creole. And, and I resisted that in high school. And when I came to the United States, and you, I, I faced similar challenges, you know, uh, English is, English as, is perceived and, and treated as, as the dominant language, whereas other languages are looked down upon. Mm-hmm. Um, and I faced that as, as a college student. I faced as a, as a, as a, as a high school teacher. And I, I thought it was important for me to talk about those issues, issues such as, you know, bilingual education, the English-only movement. I tried to challenge that in my, in my work. And I also look at, you know, how culture influences how people think, you know, how people behave, how people perceive uh, others and, and treat others. So, more or less, that's what I that's what I tried to address in, in that book. And so, tell us how you came to write the agony of masculinity. Uh, that's a very good question. Well, um, as you may know, Haiti is a very uh, male-dominated country. Uh, there's a lot of uh, uh, male dominance in Haiti, uh, a lot of sexism, homophobia, and I, I was exposed to it uh, early on in, in, in life. My dad, uh, who I highly admire, uh, was a sexist man. I mean, the way he treated my mom, my sister, my sisters, uh, was not human in, in many ways. Uh, he had low expectations of, of my sisters, whereas he, he thought that I would always be successful because I was a man. Uh, he always expected my mom to cook, clean for him, uh, while he would not treat her right. So uh, it doesn't matter how tired my mom was. When she came home, she had to clean for my dad. She had to, you know, make sure the house was was well kept, you know, was clean. Um, and that was what he, that's what was expected of my mom. Even though she she was a, she was she was a hard worker. She was she worked long hours. But but when she came home, she still had to make sure there was food on the table. Otherwise, my dad would be mad. So these are the things I experienced growing up as a boy. Um, when my dad 
learned that I had like two, three girlfriends, and he, that would be praised for that, you know. And instead of saying, Pierre, you should be careful and you should treat the women's right, you should not, you know, you shouldn't be uh, having four or five girlfriends while while your girlfriend, you know, are not allowed to have two or three boyfriends. So, you know, I had that male privilege that I, I did not question as a boy. I thought it was the normal thing to do, having three, four girlfriends and, and brag about them. And my dad, my old brother, and, and, and close friends, close male friends would praise me for it. And then when I came to the United States, uh, I, I continue, you know, experiencing, uh, witnessing, you know, um, male dominance, but also racism. So I think, you know, I thought it was important for me to sort of combine those two, blackness and, and maleness, and, and explore them in, 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 in a book. So while I was Pursuing an advanced graduate certificate in women's studies, I took many classes, which really shaped the way I see, the way I see, understand um, maleness, masculinity, and in relation to racism and uh, uh, white supremacy and patriarchy. Uh, and so, as I was sitting with my wife in the living room, I clearly remember it was on Thursday evening. We were just talking, and I said to her that, you know what, I would like to uh, write a book on black masculinity black masculinity. And of course, as always, she said to me, yes, honey, you should go for it. Well, the same night, I started making a list of men that I thought would be uh, interested in participating in the book. So I contacted, you know, friends, classmates, professors, and neighbors, and so I emailed them, and I emailed about 70 um, men that I knew. And of course, I, I talked to some of my friends who invite their friends to participate in the book. And uh, about 50 responded positively to my request. Um, they are from, you know, they were from different diverse backgrounds in terms of race, class, gender, and ethnicity. Some of them were university professors, while others were, you know, uh, college dropouts, uh, taxi drivers, street performers, you know, um, guidance counselors. Um, people use, who were arrested and uh, in jail for drug trafficking, and some of them were owned uh, uh, street clubs. And I wanted to make sure that my participant, you know, uh, has a different, you know, diverse background and would bring different voices and, to, and different, would bring different voices and insights, share different insights with me about black masculinity. So more or less, that's how the idea of, of the book uh, uh, was created, uh, was conceptualized, if you will. Um, yeah, that, that, that's, that's about it. And the interviewees in the book, as you say, um, have um, uh, spanned the gamut of um, genders and sexuality, sexual identities, as well as um, ethnic background under the rubric of, of black. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Um, could you could you rephrase what you said? I'm not sure if I understand your question. In other words, uh, the interviewees are are not all African American heterosexuals. They mm -hmm. are um, men of African descent, but but mm -hmm. some of them are immigrants. Some of them come from the Caribbean, etc. Mm -hmm. I was just wondering if you could tell us about the range of identities that your um, interviewees. Um, uh, hold. Okay. Well, you know, um, personally, I'm against ethnocentricism, and I and I thought it would be important for me to interview people from different backgrounds. And at first, uh, the goal was to interview only African Americans. 
Then I said to myself, no, well, African Americans may not know how it's like to be the men growing up in the Caribbean uh, and having to face with, you know, uh, patriarchy, uh, sexism, and so on and so forth. Uh, so, so I decided that I would interview men of African descent. It doesn't matter where they are from. Um, and so I had, I, like I said, I have people who are, you know, who are African Americans who are from the Caribbean, who form, uh, who from Africa, uh, who came here when they were, you know, seven, eight years old. They practically grew up here. So my goal was to interview people who have different experiences with racism, sexism, patriarchy. If I were to, if I were to interview only African-Americans, although African-Americans are not homogeneous because there are class and, and six, you know, uh, class issues involved, uh, but I thought it would, it would be limited. Therefore, I said it would, it would make more sense to interview people from Africa because Africans, people who are from Africa may not have the same experience as African-Americans. Likewise, people from the Caribbean, male of African descent who were born and grew up in, in the Caribbean, may not have the same understanding of racism as African Americans mm-hmm. because they haven't been here living, they haven't lived in the United long enough to understand the intricacies of racism. You see, so I thought it would be important for me to bring all different voices into the book so that the reader can have a more or less a comprehensive understanding of how race. Uh, gender plays out in terms of how men of African descent are perceived and treated uh, in, 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 in the U.S. society and beyond. Can you tell us a little bit about the similarities and differences that uh, that you discovered among these men that you interviewed in terms of their experience with uh, racism and patriarchy? Right. Um, one thing that I would Later on, I'm going to share with you some of the some of the some of the findings of the book, and I would illustrate further what you just what you just asked me. But for now, let me say that uh, men from again, I'm I'm generalizing because I, I'm only referring to those that I interviewed. Of course, uh, the, the men from from the Caribbean that I interviewed do not represent the voices of all men of the Caribbean. So I, I want to make sure that I that I that I point this out. Likewise, the African American men I interviewed in this book, in this book for this book, their voices do not represent the voice of all African African American men, right? So I would say this: I, from from what I based on the findings, it seems to me that men from the Caribbean seem to have a different experience with maleness and patriarchy. Although there are a lot of similarities, they all agree, most of the participants agree that men have benefited from the patriarchal system that really is the voices of men over women. That enables men to, for example, to be up on the street without having, without having to worry about being raped. So they understand that. They understand that men tend to be taken more seriously than women. That's a common thread that I found among the men of condition that I intended for the book. Similarly, they all shared with me that they have been victimized by the racist system in which they are, they are, they are operating as men of African descent. So 
with the exception of one man of African descent who was born and grew up in Trinidad and Tobago, who stated that he did not, he has not experienced racism, partly because he spent most of his time in the lab doing experiments. He was, uh, he was uh, finishing a uh, PG in polymer chemistry. He was the only one among all the men, all the participants that I interviewed who stated that he did not experience or at least hasn't experienced yet racism. Mm-hmm. All the men who participated in the study stated clearly that they have been victims of racism just because of the skin tone. And I don't know if that answers your question. Is, are the men that you're referring to all of the men, the ones who have a, a, a immigrant background as well as ones who uh, were, were are, uh, uh, Native Americans are Native African Americans? I did not interview Native, Native, uh, Native, I don't know what you mean by Native, Af- Native African American, but I, would, I interviewed African Americans. Most of them, most of the participants that I interviewed actually were African American, uh, African Americans. There were some from the Caribbean, some from Africa, I mean from the continent, Africa, who came here when they were 18 years old, they came here for college, uh, and I also interviewed, um, uh, a man who was from Algeria, different parts from, you know, different parts from Africa. And so these are the men that interviewed African Americans, uh, Africans, and Caribbean men. Okay. And that, 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 that was, uh, that, that was the, that, that was, that was, that was the men that I interviewed. Yes. And that's, that's very clear. And the question that I was asking, I just wanted to underscore, um, what I heard you say, which is that, Despite the native background, uh, whether they were born in, in the Caribbean and came to America or born in Africa and came to America, despite the native background, all of the men except one said that they experienced racism by the sheer fact of their skin tone. That's correct. Is there any um, variation in terms of um their experience with um, sexism or um, homophobia or et cetera? Yes. Um, well, you know, I think there are more similarities than differences uh, when it comes to homophobia. For example, one of the Haitian men I interviewed uh, was born in Haiti. I, think, I believe he came here when he was about 12 years old. He uh, has similar understanding about homophobia as an African-American man whose father was African American and mother was Colombian. So, uh, depending on the level of consciousness, I found men, I found some of my participants were more sophisticated, were more knowledgeable, more knowledgeable about the way the patriarchal system operates. Whereas some of them seem to be, uh, naive. And it turns out, as it turned out, the participants were more interested in talking about racism than sexism, partly because they did not want to confront their own male privileges. And I, and I've seen a lot of that. When I try, when I would begin the conversation talking about, you know, maleness, you know, um, and they would sort of deviate from that conversation and, and focus on racism because that, that's what seemed to be, they were mostly preoccupied by. Um, so if you were to read the book, you would see that they, they would go, they would, even when, even when, even though I wanted to get some insight from them about maleness, about their male privileges, 
many of them sort of deviated from my question and they would they would they would they would they would um they would rather talk about racism which seemed to be uh the main concern. Nonetheless, those who did take the time to talk about uh patriarchy, uh sexism, they were pretty open about the maybe villages. They also referred to the mothers, to the you know, to their uh sisters who they witnessed expenses uh, experience, experiencing uh, sexism, and they were pretty open about it. Like I said, some of them sort of, they would just uh, um, uh, talk a little bit about it and move on to talk about racism. Mm-hmm. So some that's of the, what, yeah, go ahead. Some of the men uh, uh, in, the, in the survey uh, questions that you asked them did not openly disclose their um, sexual identities. Some of them did. Right, that's correct. And I did tell them that, uh, when I was doing the interview, I said, you do not, you don't have to talk about your sexual preferences if you don't feel comfortable doing so. I give them the option. With the exception of one man who was, who was clear. I mean, he was, he was clear. He's a transgender man. He was born female and later on in life, he decided to transition from being female to being uh, male. He was pretty open about his sexuality. But most of the men did not want to reveal their sexual preferences, and and I did not want to stigmatize them. I didn't want to have um, put them in a, put them in a position where they had to see something that they didn't want to say. So I told them right from the beginning, um, I would like to know if how you identify yourself sexually, whether you are bisexual or gay or straight. And uh, those who seem to be straight, they would say I'm straight. Others were sort of ambivalent. Um, they were sort of uh, unclear. They were not. They didn't seem to be interested in talking about their sexual preferences. Uh, like I said, they would talk about their male privileges and go on to talk about racism. But uh, it seems to me the the question about sexual preferences were was a little bit uh, uh, uncomfortable for some of them. Uh, why do you think that is? Well, partly because of the stigma they have about uh, gay, bisexual men, especially bisexual men of African descent. Um, perhaps they don't want to reveal that. Uh, and as you know, there are many men of African descent who are still in the closet because they don't want to come out. They don't want to come out and be stigmatized by their own community of color. Um, and in fact, some of the men talk about that. They see that in the African-American community, there's a lot of uh, homophobia. Um uh, uh, to a point where men who are gay or you know, bisexual, they don't wanna, they don't wanna reveal that to their friends and families, because they know if they do that, they will be uh, isolated, they will be stigmatized, they will be discriminated against. And I suspect that may have been the reason why uh, some of my participants uh, chose not to talk about to to reveal their sexual preferences. So is it fair to assume that the among the interviewers? that the men who were um, unequivocally heterosexual or straight felt no uh, discomfort in disclosing their um, sexual identity, but the men who may have been bisexual or homosexual did feel um, discomfort. Is that a fair that's, assumption? That's correct. That's correct. Is it possible uh, that there were some men who had a – who were unequivocally uh, heterosexual, but felt that disclosing uh, that heterosexual identity may in and of itself be perpetuating um, 
uh, heteronormativity. In other words, that by asserting um, uh, their heterosexual identity, they would in some way be um, uh, participating in, in patriarchy. That could have been. Uh, that, that, that is a possibility, but based on my obser- observation and my interaction with them, I didn't feel that some of them uh, refused to assert their heterosexual, you know, uh, privileges um, because of the reason that you just evoked. Uh, but I agree with you. There are many men who refuse to say that they are straight because they want they want because they want to challenge uh, the the patriarchal system that expect men to be straight, uh, preferably, you know, uh, able-bodied Christian straight white male men. So. Although I agree with you what you said, and I'm fully aware of, of that of that factor. However, in my in my finding, I did not um, discover any men. I didn't have any participant who who chose not to talk about their heterosexual privileges or just because of that because of that reason. Uh, I think uh, they simply did not. I suspect those who decided not to talk about that could have been bisexual. Uh, and, and refuse to reveal it. That, that was my, that was my, that would be my, um, hypothesis. Mm-hmm. Again, I don't have any evidence to support, to support that. Although there are, of course, uh, men who disclose their, um, sexual identities a, a, across the, um, range as bisexual or homosexual and a straight among the interviewees. I just want to make that clear for the readers. That's correct. What was some of the, um, Surprises. Was was there anything surprising about uh, what you found in these interviews? Yes, there was one one instance. Uh, I interviewed a man um, who was born and grew up in Puerto Rico. He's, I, he identified himself as Afro Puerto Rican, and he shared with me that and uh, in Puerto Rico, it's okay to be gay if you are a white Puerto Rican or the way whiteness is being constructed in Puerto Rico, uh, it's okay. But if you are an Afro-Puerto Rican, it's, it's a stigma. So it's harder for Afro-Puerto Ricans to reveal their uh, sexual preferences. You know, if they are gay or bisexual, it's harder for them to come out of the closet than it is for Puerto Ricans who are identified as white. I, I thought that was interesting. Uh, I, wasn't, I wasn't fully surprised by it. But I thought it was interesting, you know, and that is happening in Puerto Rico. Mm. Um, so it, you see how race and, and sexuality and gender sort of play out, right? I inspect it, right? Uh, and, and, and that's, to me, that was a, that was a very interesting discovery, uh, in my, in my research. I did not expect him to share that with me, uh, partly because, I, again, I don't know if, if he's, I don't know if he's, uh, bisexual. He never revealed reveal his, his sexuality to me. Uh, he talked mostly about, you know, how, uh, he's been turned against, uh, in the U.S. by virtue of being Afro-Puerto Rican. And even, even went on to say that, uh, he's been turned against by his own people. <laughs> and unfortunately, I did not get to, get him to expand on that. Um, uh, but essentially what he said, he's been mostly supported by white, Americans and people from his own native land. Um, but what I found interesting in his, in his statement was that 
Afro-Americans and Puerto Rico and Puerto Rico uh, tend to have a harder time coming out of the closet than than men, than particular men who are identified as white. So um, after reading the book uh, and coming across that example, as well as some others uh, among the um, um, interviews, I came up with a hypothesis that I'd like for you to respond to. Sure. It seemed as if um, uh, in a, uh, it seemed as if whiteness pervasively defines a standard of masculinity and that if you, to be non-white is already, uh, uh, is already a position, is already a position in which one's masculinity is questioned. And so to, um, identify with a mask, a non-normative masculinity or with a um, sexual identity that is other than heterosexual seems to support or justify a stigmatized or um, oppressed identity that's other than white. And so um, a Afro-Puerto Rican or even an African-American, for instance, may have this difficulty with their own gender identity because of the oppressed state that they're in. I absolutely agree with you. And if you if we were to go back to uh to historically white men white privileged white men have been doing defining how other men should behave, should perform their their manliness. And even doing the colonial era of slavery, uh, men of African descent were somewhat stripped of their masculinity. Uh, the white man, the white master, were the ones who defined how they should behave. Uh, they could not public, openly perform the menace, except at home. In fact, uh, what I would, I would, I would go on arguing that in the, in the sugar cane or, 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 or in the plantation, uh, they were not allowed to really perform their manliness the way they would, they would they would perform it at home. So what what happened during during slavery? There were African uh, the slaves, the male slaves, who were who were oppressed by the white masters. Uh, ended up you know ended up abusing their wives and and children because of the oppression that they were experiencing in the in the in the in the, in the plantation field and the and the sugarcane or cotton field. Uh, so anyway, they, they were somewhat, you know, uh, stripped of their masculinity, masculinity. Uh, and that legacy continues up until now. White males, privileged white males are the ones who define, you know, how, how one should be, behave as a man. Uh, so I'm not surprised that, uh, Afro, uh, Puerto Ricans or people of African descent, uh, are condition to perform the manliness based on the standard that's been set by the white man. And when I say white man, I'm referring to privileged white men because we know class uh, also shapes or informs how the man behaves. So I'm not referring to poor white men. I'm referring to privileged white men. So it, this, is a, this is a model many, many men of African descent have been some, somehow uh, forced to adopt. To emulate, and if you look at all the major Hollywood movies, what type of masculinity that's being displayed 
and within and, and these movies. It's a white middle class form of masculinity. You see, uh, it, it's it's very pervasive. It's very pervasive, and by being exposed to this type of misrepresentation of male performance by African American, by middle African descent, we have learned that to be accepted as a man, we have to perform a the type of masculinity that's been set for us by privileged white males. So I'm not really surprised at all that we, as men of African descent, have a tendency to perform uh, a type of masculinity that reflects uh, a white way, if I can put it that way, of behaving, a white male way of behaving, of 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 acting, of of even speaking, <laughs> for that matter. So it, it's not it's not surprise, surprising at all to me as as a researcher. But doing the research confirmed some of what I've you know uh, what I've uh, uh, taught or uh, believed even before I I, I did the research. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of, of course there were surprises, and I never I I, I do not it did not occur to me that after after the weekends are being oppressed. Uh, I'm referring to those who are, who are gay or uh, uh, bisexual are being oppressed because they, 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 they cannot come out because a black man cannot be gay. A black man cannot be bisexual. That's, that's taboo. But a white man can, can be. So it, it, it's, it's a, it's a colonial legacy that we are still, uh, uh, um, being a victim of. Mm-hmm. Can you, uh, read to us some of a passage, uh, from the book? Sure. I'll be happy to. Um, the story of the fifty men involved. Uh, again, I'm just gonna read some of the, some of the narratives, some of the quotes, uh, and and then I will make I will make a con- concluding remark if you if if you don't mind. Uh, the story of the fifty men involved and 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 my study illuminates how they have been taught to perform the malice, often in oppressive and destructive ways against women, other men, and themselves. Directly or indirectly, the performance of the maleness has not only been oppressive to women and men, but also contributed to maintain the patriarchal system. As a case in point, a 30-year-old man of African descent who claimed to be highly educated repeatedly said that women are soft and wicked than men and that they should be, they should obey their husband, stay at home and take care of the children, clean the house, and cook. A significant number of men who took part in the, in the study shared this view. Another equally important fact that is worth noting here is that the story of nearly 99% of the, of the participants reflect the high degree to which many of them have faced and endured the harmful effects of racism and white supremacy. Many of them lamented the fact that they have been discriminated against because of their racial and ethnic backgrounds. Likewise, they talk about the experience with maleness. For example, one of the men uh, who was six years old, who was six years old, is African American, and he was a guidance counselor for over 20 years. Uh, burst into, te- into tears while he was talking about his mother. He also lamented the fact that he did not have an emotional connection with his father until his father died. He stated, and I quote, 
My dad was a hard worker. I witnessed how angry he got when he was talking about his job. But he did not allow me to know him as my dad. He was just behaving like a man when I tried to approach him and talk to him. I wish I got to know him. I know he was a good man, but he never showed his emotions in front of us. The only time we got to see some of his emotions was when he came home and started talking about his white boss who did not treat him right. End of, end of course. Similarly, Joseph, which is a pseudonym, a 27-year-old man who was born in Haiti but grew up in the United States, expressed disappointment about his authoritarian Haitian father who spent more time disciplining his children and building a good relationship with them. He stated that at work, his father earned the reputation of being a friendly, warm, and funny person. However, at home, he was a very different person. Emotionally, he was completely detached from him, his brothers, and his sisters. He did not feel personally connected to his father until his parents were divorced. Joseph told his story in the following terms. And I quote, My dad was a very violent guy. In his mind, what he had to do to be a good father is to be disciplinarian by hitting us and by being mean and tough, so on and so forth. So I experienced him as very distant and disconnected from me, my mother, my brothers, and sisters, end quote. Similar to Joseph, Tom, whose African-American father died when he was five years old, complained that he did not feel that his white Colombian mother understood the racial prejudice and racism that he faced while he was a high school student. He therefore had to rely on his older cousin for support and counseling. However, his experience with his cousin was not pleasant. Often, his cousin forced, forced him to get into fight so he could prove his maleness. The message that he constantly received from his older cousin was that, as a boy, he had to be tough and cannot be a punk or a sissy. Tom expressed his frustration in these terms, and I quote, My Colombian mother was brought to the States, so she had a sort of understanding of how race plays out in the U.S. system, but she did not really understand the intricacies of racism. So there were times when I came home and I explained to her that at school there were teachers that did not expect much of me. Even I explained that to her, she never fully understood what was going on. My cousin would tell me what I decided, what I needed to do was to man up. He was sort of my immediate old model. He was about five years older than, I, than me, so he was the one that said, and I quote, this is what you need to do, man up, end of the quote. Like, like, like Tom and Joseph, another African-American man in his mid-twenties at the time, felt that he was expected to be tough and behave like a real boy, that is, Repress his emotions. He was expected to show interest in sports so he would not be called a sissy. He had to resist and fight against the homophobic view of his grandmother who questioned his sexual orientation because, in her view, friends did not show enough interest in girls as a boy. Friends said that he could not cry in front of his parents and grandparents who expected him not to show any emotion. His male friend, on the other hand, did not have any problem with him crying in front of her. That female friend was the only one among many who did not have a problem with men crying in front of her, in front of women.
Fred narrates his, his story in the following terms, and I quote, In high school, there was this image that the, the idea man should be a tough guy or a thug. That wasn't me at all. But I noticed that a good portion of the women seemed to be attracted to that. So I felt compelled at times to be seen as tough in front of girls. Looking back to the first time I cried in front of a girl I liked, I have to say I appreciate her for supporting me and not reverting to the stereotypes of boys don't cry. Since that point, I no longer have the anxiety of crying in front of women who I have intimate relationship with, although when I do it, it seems to make some of them react in surprising ways because they haven't seen that much in their lives. So most of the participants felt that they had to perform a certain type of maleness in order to meet the expectation of their friends, family members, and people in their community. Some argue that because they are black, people expect more of a male performance of them. Uh, I refer earlier uh, to the African, to the Afro-Puerto Rican, uh, who who shared with me that it's okay for a white Puerto Rican to come out and and sh- and say he or he's gay or bisexual, but for an Afro for Puerto Rican is 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 much harder. Um, and I also noted earlier that uh, although most of the participants uh, stated that they experienced racism, but there was only one uh, man from Trinidad and Tobago who claimed that he hasn't yet been a victim of racism. Um, this black man from Trinidad and Tobago stated, and I quote, I, have, I haven't had so much experience with racism, which I think is good, but I know I have friends who have experienced it. Maybe I'm being naive. I want my friends to try to get past racism so we can move forward as a race. Racism is not affecting me directly. I think I'm being a little bit naive or being open-minded. I think it would be more concern, it would be more, more of a concern for me if I, if I, if I had experienced it directly, but I haven't. Alfred, uh, was finishing a PhD in polymer chemistry when I interviewed him for the book. Uh, in his own words, Studying this type of chemistry is an advantage for him, as there are there are many people of color who study who study poly, uh, polymer chemistry. He said that as a student, he spent most of his time in the lab doing experiments. Consequently, he had very limited exposure to the out, outside world. Alfred felt that his, this might have protected him from being discriminated against as a man of color, as he has interacted only with a very limited number of people. When I asked him about institutional racism, he said that. Yeah, it actually works in favor as many companies are looking for people of color with a background in polymer chemistry. Alfred said, and I, and I, and I quote, actually, institutional, institutional racism works in my favor being a black chemist specializing in, poly, in polymer chemistry. Some of these companies are actually looking to hire black polymer chemists because we are in demand. So it actually worked in my favor, although I would rather be hired on the basis of my skill and my experience, not because I'm a black chemist. Again, personally, I haven't experienced racism. Thankfully, I haven't been exposed to it, but that doesn't mean in the future I would not be. If that happens in the future, I'll try to remain open-minded and try to look at the situation objectively. Racism essentially helps me, but it shouldn't, but it does. And if you really... Individually, I haven't had too much experience with racism, end of the quote. Uh, 
so these are the quotes that I that I um, that I figured I would share with you. Although there are many, 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 many more, but I figured I would I would end there. That's excellent. Thank you so much. Can you tell us what you're working on now? Right now, I'm working on I'm working on many projects. One of which is uh, is a book uh, called Linguistic Apartheid and the English Only Movement. And in this book, I'm looking at how from from the colonial era until now, how uh, Western countries have tried to silence other languages in other cultures to give primacy to dominant languages such as English, French, and obviously those two, French and English. And we have continued to witness the colonial legacy, as mentioned earlier. During slavery, uh, uh, many languages Many dialects, if you want to put it put it that way, were wiped out because the colonizers wanted to impose their own languages, their own cultures on the colonized. And with the English-only movement in the United States, we have continued to witness a new form of colonization as far as language, language and cultural, linguistic and cultural issues are, are concerned. And and that's what I'm trying to do in this book. I'm 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 trying to 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 make a point saying that the fact that we are living in the so-called post-colonial era doesn't mean uh, issues that colonized people faced during colonization uh, are gone. We are still facing cultural, linguistic, you know, uh, uh, oppression by those who are in power, and and that's one project. The other project I'm doing a book on Edward Said. I'm looking at how the legacy of Edward Said has continued to influence the work of many young scholars like myself. I think Edward Said's work is relevant and it always will be as long as uh, we are we have uh, U.S. imperialism, um, uh, as long as you ha- we have um, uh, Islamophobia, as long as the the, the rest. When I well, by the rest, I'm referring to third world countries are being are being looked down upon by the West. So Edward Said's work, like Frank Fennon's work, will, will always be relevant. So those are the two projects among many that I'm working on. Thank you so much, Pierre, for joining us on New Books in African American Studies. You're welcome, sir. We've been talking to Pierre W. Orlis, the author of The Agony of Masculinity, Race, Gender, and Education in the Age of New Racism and Patriarchy, published by Peter Lang Press in 2010. I hope you enjoyed our discussion, and I hope you will return and listen to others on new books in African American studies.